Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. People are looking for non-chain independent businesses that they can align with that cater to their values, that they can discover, that they can feel like they're discovering, that they feel like they're helping. And so from that perspective, on a macro level, it seems like it's a great time. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. We talk every week about the changes occurring in the restaurant industry. And that makes sense because we work in the restaurant industry. But few things affect our businesses more than tourism. And the very nature of travel has changed. I wanted to dig deeper into what's going on. So I reached out to Rafat Ali of Skift. Rafat is a travel expert and his publication is the go-to resource for travel trends and the effect those trends are having on the larger industry. Today, we talk about the people and the companies that are making waves in travel that will ripple into our industry and the way we connect with tourists. I'm a media entrepreneur, uh, started a previous online media company that was focused on the business of media. And I built and sold that. It was a blog that turned into a media company, sort of one of the typical bloggers in the pajamas blogging that turned into a media business. And so that I sold to Guardian in 2008 and then left and traveled for two years in 2010 to 2012. And so Skift, which covers the business of travel, so we're the easiest way to understand us is we're the Bloomberg of travel, so news, research, conferences, marketing services for the global travel industry. And not that Skift came out of my travels, as in like my travels were sort of leisure, also very, very remote type travel, Mongolia, Comoros Islands, Uzbekistan, relatively remote as in like lesser known destinations. But the lessons of how eclectic my travels and how and the intersections of travel with every sector in the planet certainly informed how we start Skift and continues 10 years. Yes, we're industry, media, publication, company, but we're not boring. Like B2B industry, but we're not boring. We don't talk to consumers, but sort of the super travelers and super users of travel are still very interested in what we write because we write in a human language about the business of travel. And our influence is quite large beyond our size if we're a small company, but our every mainstream media that writes about travel or hospitality takes cues from us. We're on all the major media networks talking about the business. Anytime there's some news on whether holiday travel or certainly over the last two years with the pandemic and all of what's happened, we are the source that a lot of people turn to. How did you build that credibility? Because I think that there's value in learning how to become an authority in your field. Yeah. I mean, in our case, since my background is journalism, I was a journalist and I'm not reporting for Skift, but once a journalist, always a journalist. You know, nobody can take that title away from me, I guess, even if I don't write. So we come from a journalistic point of view, which is 
you know, asking the hard questions. A quick example I'll give is when Airbnb first started, when we were starting Airbnb's rise and ours sort of mirrored, obviously, Airbnb is a multi-multi-billion, we're a tiny company, but you know what I mean. In terms of, we were starting about the same time. And there were a lot of hard questions about Airbnb's effects on cities and the good and bad. Early on, because it was a startup and buzzy, nobody was asking the hard questions. Nobody was asking questions, much less hard questions about like, oh, what does it mean for New York and housing and effects on neighborhoods and et cetera, et cetera. And we started asking these questions. And so it's just by the sheer dint, I would say, journalism and asking the uncomfortable questions, hard questions, being independent mattered. And I know this is a lot of what your world is, independent businesses. And so we're fiercely independent and continue to be. Yes, we get money from the industry, but that hasn't prevented us from biting the hand that feeds us whenever we have to. (laughs) And they always come back. If you do your job right, you're going to say Airbnb, these are the challenges, but here's the good things of what you do as well. So that's, I think, we build credibility. No secret sauce to it. It's just building one brick at a time. But if there was a secret sauce, I would think that the secret sauce is in clearly defining value in a way that works for you and seems to resonate with your viewership. Like you write what they want to read. And if that's the case, how did you figure that out? I do use this term called daily utility value. Like what is your daily utility value such that people keep coming back to you? And if we're nice to have versus a must have, and this is a huge threshold that any media company or anybody, like even your podcast, you have to figure out, you know, nice to have versus must have. And so we, over a period of time, figured out if we picked some personas of people that we really, for instance, the CMO, the chief marketing, the heads of marketing of hotels, destinations, airlines, et cetera, how do we super serve them? And so that's a persona we've always had in our head for 10 years. If the CMO of Marriott is going to get value out of us, what do we do on a daily basis that satisfies his or her needs? And so things like setting the agenda for the day, this comes a lot from the political media where a lot of political media tries to set the agenda for the day in the morning and whatever news they come out with. So we've taken some cues from that, which is become a daily habit, come out early in the morning. This is the newsletter that we send out, very focused on email as a direct connection to users. And this is true for any sector, including hospitality and restaurant world that you come from, direct connection from users versus being dependent on plat- like third parties. Facebook, Google has been huge for us. Did you do the work beforehand to create that customer avatar? It, not in such a formal way. I mean, a lot of these things just you learn as you go along. I had a little bit of benefit of having created another media company before, but that was 2000, so almost 20 years ago different world. The world has sped up so many times and the tools have become, social media has become such a big part of our lives. But pretty early on, I would say we latched onto, I remember this very early on, the then CMO of Hyatt, the hotel company. He called me and left a voice message and said, Rafa, I'm a huge fan. And, I, and we kept that. That was like the first big industry person, must have been like month two or something. And I kept that voicemail for such a long time as like, a, oh, this is, I played it to our team. And we were, I don't know, five people at that point. So yeah, we latched onto that persona pretty early, even though it's not like we mapped out any, anywhere. But every night when we used to close the newsletter early days, I said, did we do the best job we can to be useful to this person? I think it's incredibly important. 
in the independent restaurant game, you want to serve everybody because you want to make as much money as is humanly possible. So you kind of become a generalist or somebody will walk in and say, you should add this to the menu or you should add that to the menu. And the next thing you know, you got a 60 item menu for a place that started with 10 items. But I think there's so much value in what you're talking about, which is niching down, right? Choosing your avatar, choosing your target customer and becoming best in the world at serving that person. Because you could argue that your niche customer is small, but they're not. There are thousands and thousands of people represented by that avatar that pay your bills. Right. And I think this is the biggest thing that all of our businesses learn and certainly small businesses like ours and people in the restaurant world, especially in the independent restaurant world, learn is like less is more. And it's such a cliche, but we all learn it. And the value of saying no, all the things that we all learn along the way, whether it's, as you said, give the example of the menu in our cases, do we do more stories or less stories? Turns out doing less deeper stories, people like it better than doing more churn-based stuff. You know, that's a big part of our culture as well. Like we're very focused on now 10 years later, making sure that the work hours are nine to five. Now we're a global company, so it's people are spread out over the world, but still like get your work done in the hours that are there and go live your life. And so that is a philosophy that we've adopted. So less is more sort of plays and focusing on few things plays well into that. For most of the time that Skift has been around, I had my head down in day-to-day operations of a restaurant group. So I was overwhelmed on a perpetual basis, but the pandemic happened and like a lot of people had a lot of free time on my hands. And then in August of 2020, I became aware of you and aware of Skift because I read an article that you had written entitled, The Event Industry is Being Confronted by Its Napster Moment. And it was like a kick in the nuts. It really was. There just aren't that many things that I've read over my life that I was like, wow, I'm reading something relevant to the moment I am in that will help dictate how I move forward. Yeah, that article resonated a lot. I was very surprised at how wide resonance it had. But, you know, I've been doing events for 20 years and we covered the business of events. We're sort of doubly invested. We do our own events, but we also cover the business of events, which technically is part of the travel industry. So that's why, and that having covered in the article charts out like six or seven media related industries, music, news, gaming, or book industry, et cetera, that have gone through digital disruptions along the way. In this case, events is just being sped up a lot more just because we're in just a sped up cycle in terms of disruption. Even in your world, in the restaurant world, we've seen that. I mean, one of the tiny innovations that I've loved in the last two years is being able to pay the bill through the QR code. And it's so simple, but it's made my life, I don't know, 5% better when I go to restaurants. But that's a lot. I'll take it. Absolutely. I want to dig into that article for just a minute because I think there were so many big ideas in it. To start for the folks that haven't read it, can you just kind of run me through the overall thesis of the article? Yeah, I mean, the point was that with technologies like Zoom and the technology we're using to record this, with all of us locked down, the events, obviously, the physical events were shut down. And events industry is a giant industry, obviously, events anywhere from professional events to weddings, for instance, is a huge, huge industry, employs hundreds of thousands, millions of people, maybe worldwide. And so with Zoom-like technology and the costs are undercut, the economics are undercut, such that large trade shows, events, meetings, etc., the economics of it will be undercut and will happen 
what happened to music when Napster first came around in their early aughts, late 90s, will in its own version happen in the event industry. And it certainly played out in various ways over the last two years. So the article gives a example of, as I mentioned, industries that have gone through digital transformation as a result of digital being injected into their system. And what seems like a gimmick early on, or it's not good enough quality, people laugh at it, like Zoom. People say, how can Zoom eliminate human-to-human contact? How can Zoom eliminate conferences and stuff like that? People underestimate that the technology moves very fast and the experiences become a lot better. Example that I give is like, Remember the early digital music services that launched? Uh, none, probably nobody remembers just because they were crappy when we when they first launched. <laughs> and then Q fast forward to now, Spotify type services that are ever present, ever on are the reality. And so that was the thesis in the article is like, the industry is going to go through the Napster moment. Lots of money will be lost. Maybe jobs will be eliminated. A lot of venues and conference companies are going to figure out what, you know, how did they reinvent themselves? conference organizers like us will have to figure out, well, how do I get the revenues that I used to get pre-pandemic or just innovate on formats and become more creative in how we deliver and how we engage people, particularly online. In a year and a half later, how do you feel the article itself has stood the test of time? So we always sort of overestimate, I think, the short-term effect and underestimate the long-term. This is true for all tech that we have seen. I do think we're still very early in event tech or just what I call interaction tech, because it's not just event tech, it's you and I doing meetings or doing this or doing our daily business lives or whatever. Whatever technology will emerge from the big companies or startups will come into the event industry as well. And so I think we're at the start of it, of the disruption. I do think the value of human-to-human interaction has been proven 10 times over. I don't have to explain this to anyone. Everybody knows this. We have written at Skiff quite a bit about like how CFOs are firmly in charge of the travel budgets because they've seen how much eliminating them means in terms of the bottom line and the money. And so there's going to be pressure on particularly business travel in terms of less people traveling, not just because of the cost factor, but because of activism around climate change. And big companies like Deloitte and others that are some of the largest buyers of business travel, meaning their people travel the most, are under pressure from shareholders or activists in general to say, cut your carbon footprint. And guess what gets cut? One of the first things, which is travel in general. All these big consulting firms that that buy billions of dollars of travel have put commitments in place just in the last year, year and a half to say, by these years, we'll cut our carbon footprint by X percent and travel is going to be a big part of it which means that people traveling for events, which is technically what it is, is business travel. And so less people will be going to events if you can deliver a good enough experience online. Hybrid certainly is the way to go. Everybody knows hybrid. Hybrid also means potentially the physical part will be smaller, virtual part will be larger, or that you have multi-venue meetings and where like people are gathered in central locations connected through digital. So I think a lot of innovation holograms, which were like a gimmick 10 years ago. Why should it be a gimmick now? Like you and I could be sitting in a room in a sort of a hologram fashion in five years. It sounds like it's plausible at this point. I know that fear. The fear of losing everything or almost as bad. The fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. 
So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. And I think that when you talk about less travel, I think there's a ripple effect, right? Hotels will struggle because of this, independent restaurants, chain restaurants, everybody's going to suffer because of this. But having said that, there's also, and I know you're very close with Brian Chesky, there's this whole other type of travel that is emerging where it's not some corporate suit that's traveling and staying at a Hyatt hotel. It's like a graphic designer that's just popping around the country from Airbnb to Airbnb with no real home. Can you talk to me about that transition yeah, so, as well? I mean, digital nomad is a term that people use. It was sort of a gimmicky term before the pandemic, but pandemic has made it completely real. You mentioned Brian Chesky, CEO and co-founder of Airbnb. Airbnb has been a big beneficiary of that trend. Our small company, Skift, about 60 people now, we went completely remote as a company. Obviously, we closed on our offices, but we've permanently gone remote as a company. People are working from wherever they are. Many of our young People on our team are just living on Airbnb and living in Croatia or Puerto Rico and not just like living there. They're doing two months here, two months there, five months here, kind of like the Airbnb life in many ways or the van life, whatever. There are lots of terms to it and many ways of doing it. And so our company, we're now hiring anywhere. This is true for many of the creative businesses. It may be less for some physical hospitality businesses, talking about our world, you know, the travel and hospitality world. but they're hiring from anywhere these days, and that's kind of beginning to be the case. That leads to a couple of things, and we still, the, the evidence will take a while for it to come because it's still early in the evolution, but like, will it spur new forms of travel? One longer stays, Airbnb has put out numbers saying that, I forget what it is, but some good number of their listings are 30 days and above, but not listings. Bookings are 30 days and above, which is a mind-blowing thing to think about. People actually living in different cities and young people or any type of people. Also, if your team is spread around the world or spread around a certain geographic area, how do you bring them together? For instance, in our company, when we finished the budget for 2022 last year, we build in a budget for teams coming together four times a year. So that's a new form of travel that will spur, obviously, help hotels and restaurants and airlines and everybody else in the ecosystem. So... Can that happen at scale? Probably, meaning like a certain subset, but a certain influential, high disposable income, some subset of creative folks around the world that travel industry gets a lot of spend from will gravitate towards it. So I have an agenda in every conversation that I have with everyone that I have on the show. And we're digging now into like the crux of it, which is if you choose an avatar, that exist in this new world and you niche down as an independent restaurant to say these people that are into this short term slash long term travel, if this becomes your avatar, these are people that are not being heavily marketed to, but they're everywhere. They are. And the other good news is they're spread geographically versus like just concentrated in big cities, for instance. 
and this is where intersections with the real estate boom or challenges for anybody buying a house on the other end of it is also there where people are moving in so many places and obviously reviving different localities, particularly in the U.S. that historically people would not have moved to. And that has downstream effects in terms of restaurants and stuff booming in some of these places as well. So certainly all of that is true. I want to talk about revenge travel because it's become this popular phrase. It's kind of happened, but not really, but it's definitely on the horizon. Once all of these restrictions are lifted, once people are able to travel. Which, and we're in the middle of, it looks like live, I think today we're recording this, New York is lifting their mass mandate. Like we're literally in the middle of restrictions going away. Hopefully no other variant coming, but yes. It's going to be bananas. And I'm curious to know, as somebody with their ear to the ground, I think that independents can learn a ton from what the hotel industry is doing and what the travel industry is doing at large in terms of preparing for this onslaught and their strategies for luring people to their specific locations. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, I used a British term, it's going to be mental this summer in terms of travel the spring already, I feel like the rates, if you look at flights already, it seems much, much higher than pre-COVID numbers, even flight prices and hotels, et cetera, will follow. So, you know, Airbnb, the short-term rental prices have been highest they've ever been since, I would say, summer 2020, when people first started coming out after the early lockdown. And so they've been the highest they've ever been. So certainly the prices are high. And the good news is that people are still paying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm guessing maybe that's a similar case in the restaurant world as well, where even if people are just so keen on going out, I mean, today we're recording is 42 degrees in New York and like it's sunny and we think it's summer already. <laughs> uh, and people are out because it's been terrible for the last few weeks. And so people are just dying to, and the amazing part, for living in a neighborhood in New York City and the, the amazing innovation of outdoor dining. And that's becoming a permanent part. New York, I think, has to pass the law that makes it permanent, I think, in the coming weeks, where it becomes a permanent part of the fixture because mm-hmm. it was a pandemic thing that they passed the rule that restaurants can do that. And so I know you live in San Diego, so for you it's not a big deal. But for us living in New York, dining outside, and that becoming a part of our daily lives 12 months of a year, for almost 12 months of a year, is a huge deal. And I think it makes neighborhoods vibrant. It has downstream effects for tourism as well, as in like people are able to see the vibrancy of a neighborhood in a more, you know, out, it's right there for you to see. And so I think that's been some of the benefits that has just been amazing to see. I'm going to quote you directly. You said, in the end, the end consumer always, always wins out. And you can't fight that force. And this is an industry, whether we're talking about hotels, whether we're talking about travel or restaurants, that have famously tight margins and a massive failure rate. And I'm curious to know, how can entrepreneurs in our industry make sure that they win too? I think that in general, people, and this, again, I may use some cliches, but I'll use it anyway. People want storytelling from brands in so many different ways. Like they want to know what's your story. Same in hospitality, same in travel, same, I'm sure, in the restaurant world. The provenance, they want to know the provenance. People want to be seen as discovering new things, even if it's, or at least the illusion of discovering new things, because just because these days everything gets exposed so quickly through the digital channels. And brands that have a sense of presence, digital identity, responsive to people online in channels, people seem to reward them for it. 
I'll take an example. So Puerto Rico, a destination that has probably gone through every natural and unnatural calamity a destination can go through. Hurricane, bankruptcy, all kinds of other stuff has been booming during this pandemic. Particularly 2021 was very good for them. And their marketing has very much been, it could have been beach and sun and beach that come here, but they've sort of used the residents and locals to tell the story versus marketing travel, like the cliches of travel. Mm -hmm. We're beginning to see this across the board. We did a story as gift I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, where Uganda, African country that has historically marketed itself as the cliches of big game safari. A lot of countries in that region market themselves are moving away from that because they want to attract a different type of traveler, but they also want to attract locals who've sort of, they've always attracted international audience, rich international audience. But now the pandemic, a lot of people are realizing, well, domestic tourism saved them. Yeah. And so in many cases, and this is true for, I guess, there's an extension in the restaurants as well, like particularly early on in the lockdown, this is the first time in a long time where all of us are were so attuned to what's happening within five to 10 block radius of where we live, particularly in cities like New York and others, where it's sort of anonymous in general, you move past small shops and never think about them, but you certainly thought about them when they were closed or you missed them when they were gone. Absolutely. So I feel like this, I use the term a few times in the last two years, radical localism is amazing for neighborhoods. This is true for how it translates into the restaurant world. They're right in the center of this radical localism movement, if you will, but also has an effect on tourism where potentially people are not just willy-nilly traveling around the world. There's more meaningful travel within your local region or neighborhood or backyard and less carbon footprint, if you will. So a lot of these trends are playing out, played out over the last two years, which we hope continues, at least a version of that continues. Who are the innovators? Who are the people you see out there today that are building the future of hospitality? It always is what has always been true. It's always people on the edges, right? It's people who are trying to come up with new ways of looking at whether it's hospitality or travel or booking or planning or may not, doesn't have to be just the smallest of companies, but it could be medium-sized companies, but they're generally not the mainstream in general. So a lot of new startups in travel have been funded in the last year, particularly 2021 onwards. 2020, everybody stopped just because travel was, hospitality was affected in a big way. But lots of innovative startups in the outdoor space have come just because you can imagine you can join two and two together. Outdoors became a much, much more immediate thing that people, and so there are companies, for instance, that are trying to professionalize the RV space that historically have had sort of, maybe it's a, a little bit of an old school image. And there's, for instance, a company called Campify, which is rent taking some like, it's Uber meets RV, where you can book a very well-decked camper. And there are five of these startups around the world. Like Australia, turns out like two startups are coming out of Australia that are doing well. One of them is not a public company. So these are some of the things that, as I said, outdoor has become a big space has always been there just like it was hardcore sort of outdoor rec folks very involved this is mainstreaming of outdoor if you will yeah. catered to a digital on-demand world so that's happening there's a lot of awareness of like how do we make travel obviously a lot of things have happened all across the industry but how do we make travel more inclusive which means that how do we create travel startups that are catering to underrepresented groups and so a bunch of those startups there's a bunch of activity around like women only 
tour groups, for instance, and their startups that are coming there just because historically tour companies haven't catered to their needs in sort of a specialized way and generally representation across underrepresented minorities in general. So there's a bunch of startups in that space that are coming as well. So lots of innovation happening. There's a lot of innovation happening in fintech meets travel booking. And I know a lot of fintech has come into the restaurant oh, world, yeah, for instance. Sure. So we just talked about a uh, simple thing like payments. Well, simple for us just as somebody who's paying, but it's not a simple business. It's a very complex business, as you know. But a lot of innovation coming in, in payments, for instance, buy now, pay later, which is uh, the industry term BNPL. Lots of big companies, Affirm, Klarna, Afterpay, big, big giant companies have come in. In travel, historically, BNPL as a concept has not been there, but shouldn't it be? Because these are big ticket items. If you can afford to pay a flight or once in a lifetime trip over the next six months to a year, you should be able to. And so that's opening up another part of the market. So that has really come in in the last year, year and a half in the market. So lots of innovation happening. Where do you go to learn? So when people want to learn about the future of travel and hospitality with a big age, they go to Skiff. But Correct. where, where, are, yes, <laughs> but where, <laughs> yes, they do. But where do you guys go? So when you want to learn, where do you go to learn? So one, because we're a media company, so we're journalists, so we're constantly talking to people in the industry. In many ways, we connect the dots. Like our role is connecting the dots. The knowledge is there in different pockets. How do we connect the dots across these people from this part of the travel to this part or these five different companies and how do we connect it and figure out the trends Mm -hmm. that are happening? So, and we're not 10 steps of the industry. We're two steps ahead of the industry. You don't want to be too far ahead. You want to be just enough that you can show the possibilities without alienating people. We get a lot of inspiration from all types of random things. I get inspiration for our business by reading books that are nothing to do with travel or magazines and print. I still love the feel of print, not the newspaper, but like the specialty print, whether it's magazines like Monocle that are very eclectic in the package that they put together. So I think if you have a sort of open podcasts, turns out that a lot of the good ideas that I get, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of other people, business people, as they get their ideas, even if they don't get it directly from a podcast, it's the mind space they're in when they're listening to something intimate in their ears that they get ideas, whether they're walking or commuting or listening to a podcast. or So yeah, I think that's how we get a lot of our ideas is to be more eclectic in what you read and how you look at the world and what you watch. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I mean, look, it cannot be a better time to be in the independent restaurant world for hard as it is. I don't know enough about the, it's a very, very hard industry. I do have a sense of that, of how hard it is. But as I said, like people are looking for non-chain independent businesses that they can align with that cater to their values, that they can discover, that they can feel like they're discovering, that they feel like they're helping. And so from that perspective, on a macro level, it seems like it's a great time. The restaurants that I live here in Astoria, Queens, it's a Greek neighborhood, and now it's to- it used to be Greek, and now it's very mixed. And the new restaurants that are opening, I want to know, is this person have any sense of the neighborhood? Is this person just, just like parachuted from somewhere else? So like that's one of the first things that I look for. 
when I'm looking at a restaurant. And so I would say lean into whatever neighborhoods that you're thinking about, because I think people have a better sense of their neighborhoods more than they've ever had. And isn't that a wonderful thing? That's Rafat Ali. For more on Skift, go to skift.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.